Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today we are going to talk about harnessing the thunder. Are you comfortable with power? Does it sit well with you? Is power a, a notion that kind of conjectures images of barbarity, dictatorship, force, maybe abuse? You think of goodness. You think of a powerful individual. You think of somebody who's soft, kind, gentle, sensitive, and easygoing. Let's be honest. When we think of power, we in the Western world, we get uncomfortable. We don't want to be seen as overbearing. We don't want to overpower anybody. We, we seem to have been conditioned to think that the soft, sweet, nice approach is what goodness is supposed to be about. I'm so glad you're joining. Now, we are continuing a series, so let me just take maybe 60 seconds to share with you the synopsis of a thesis that we developed yesterday. And then let's deal with the very glaring and obvious problem. So we learned that the broken sound of the chauffeur is about breaking the force of severity judgment, that there's a harsh nature of the power, even divine power, and that we want to sweeten it. So metaphorically, a sweet apple is easy to bite into, but an onion doesn't lend itself to that kind of enjoyment. And yet, apples are not a basic cooking staple, but onions are. And if you cut the onion up into small pieces, and if, if you dice it and spread it carefully, it creates really pleasant and pleasing flavor. I mean, it's, it's just nice. It's not just a sweet apple. It's, it's a basic staple to flavor your food. We talked about this mystical formula called hamtakat hagvura, the sweetening of judgment. And that that's an important part of the sounding of the shofar. And that's why in addition to the elemental and organic cry from within that's embodied by the shofar's sound, we also need to have broken sound. Because we need to engineer or sweeten the harshness. And the question that I'm going to ask you today why couldn't we just stick with the sweet? Why do we have to deal with the harsh altogether? Yesterday we talked about kindness that can go awry. 
<laughs> we talked about this, benevolence that is blind. Just, just giving. Giving to anybody anything they might ask. Whether it's the funds to buy food to somebody who's poor and destitute, which of course is a perfect example of tzedakah. Whether it's giving a child a toy that he or she wants to play with, or giving a child a sharp knife to play with, even though they can harm themselves. Or giving him matches. But playing with fire is not a good idea. It can get worse. Terrorists can ask for bombs, guns, Humvees. If you give it to them, you're participating in their acts of evil. So benevolence can go awry. All right, I, I can understand that. But it doesn't mean benevolence is bad. It just means benevolence has to be reined in. You can be benevolent to a point. Don't overindulge in giving endlessly. Don't let it become about you giving. You can be somewhat judicious, somewhat measured, and even exhibit restraint when it comes to giving so you know you're giving the right thing to the right people at the right time. That doesn't need sweetening of judgment. Yes, yeah, sure, kindness can go awry, so don't let it go awry. Don't let it devolve in the wrong direction. The entire thesis that was presented yesterday is really quite problematic. And that is exactly how the Alter Rebbe begins the next paragraph in this mystical manuscript. I synopsized. I encourage you to go back and watch the previous episode. It's not as simplistic as I made it. And yet, and yet, we still find ourselves wanting. Why do we need to proverbially sweeten the judgment or harshness, the power that's embodied by Yitzchak, the father, our father Isaac? And we have to do the Bechasodim, and we talked about this historic recalibration and the engagement of Yaakov, who kind of links up with Avram to engineer or fix Yitzchak. And we'll talk more about the three patriarchs in the next episode. But the question, the question is, why is that necessary altogether? Why can't we just engineer Avram or fix Abraham's kindness instead of sweetening Isaac's severity? Abraham was kind, very kind, extremely giving, to a, to a fault. It was from Abraham that Ishmael was able to emerge. He loved everybody. <laughs> he loved people so much he raped them and shared his love for free. That wasn't cute. Wasn't nice. In fact, it was pretty horrible. Ishmael in his youth was the image of kindness gone all wrong. 
But mind you, he did tshuva. He did return to a path of decency. He became quite a righteous fellow in his ripe old age. We just need to engineer Abraham. Instead, we focused all of our attention on trying to harness and channel the severity, the intensity of Isaac. Why do that? Lama. Why don't we just access kindness itself? And the Alter Rebbe says, access the kindness from their source. That is to say, generosity and goodness at its source can't be bad. It can just be abused. You can take advantage of a person who's kind and benevolent, it doesn't make benevolence bad in and of itself. It's not like generosity isn't a good thing. So all he need to do is just curb the dispensing, the sharing, the giving, and focus it. A little bit of restraint. If anything, it should have been Isaac who came to engineer Abraham, not Jacob calling on or mustering the forces of Abraham to engineer Isaac. Something doesn't seem to add up here. Why do we need to focus on Rosh Hashanah, on judgment? And as we talked about yesterday, it's Yom Hadin. Why does it have to be a day of harsh reckoning? Why does it have to be a day in which God decides who will live and who will die, and we're left trying to sweeten the severity. We're left trying to engineer or create something pleasant from a reality that's sour or even quite bitter. Why can't we just have kindness all the time? Just kindness restrained, kindness kind of engineered, focused, couldn't we skip that powerful stuff? You know, the power that makes people in the West so uncomfortable. My friends, what we are about to learn today is an absolutely revolutionary concept. It's revolutionary in understanding the shofar. It reveals the Baal Shem Tev's secrets on this extraordinary mitzvah. But the truth is, it's not limited to the shofar. The ideas that we are going to learn about together today can and should change your Weltanschauung, your perspective of everything. And if you haven't guessed yet, the West has it all wrong. It's not just the West, the East. Call it the goodness of Gandhi is also awry and wrong. The notion, the notion that we can just be at peace with everybody, the notion that we can just be nice and that we never have to muster 
any kind of inner strength or force, never have to exhibit any power, is actually wrong-headed. Come with me on this journey. We'll be going through the rises and rests, mountains and valleys of incredible mystical and exoteric teachings of Torah. Together, this is going to form a synergy, a beautiful concert of Torah ideas that can really change your perspective and make you and I into far better people. So, let's begin the journey. Baltarebbe says, Omnam ha'inyan hu, the thing is this. Dafke beginas gvuras de Yitzchak. Specifically, only with the power that is Yitzchak can we be effective. We need that power. We just need to sweeten that power. We need to, we need to engineer that power. We need to use it right. Imagine, if you will, a kitchen where everything's bland. <laughs> no taste. Some of my Sephardic friends, they say that's what Ashkenazic food tastes like. I had a story a while back with a Sephardic family from Montreal, and there was a little wedding, you know, one of those backyard weddings, and, and um, a nice boy from Montreal of Moroccan extraction married a nice Jewish girl from Thornhill whose parents are from Eastern Europe. And, you know, the, there was like an in-house, just a family together. And the family came back to Montreal, and they were afraid they had COVID. And they said, why? I said, well, we had dinner, but we couldn't taste anything. <laughs> All right, self-depreciating humor about uh, Ashkenazic cooking. But seriously now, can you imagine a kitchen without onions or garlic or spices? Tell me, can, can you chew on black pepper? Can you eat za'atar? Of course not. Does anybody normal munch on garlic or onions? But imagine a kitchen with no spice. Imagine cooking with no onions or garlic. Imagine no salt. And then you can think no taste. Because in order to flavor things, in order to make them really delicious, enjoyable, positively pleasant, we need to have things which, on their own, are too strong, too bitter, too sour. But when mixed with other things, or engineered, proverbially sweetened, something really delicious ensues. I mean, sweet apples are nice. It's even okay to have an apple dipped in honey. But nobody will say, pah, it was just delicious. What a sumptuous meal of apple and honey, said no one ever. 
that's actually the point. The kitchen is perhaps a template for life itself. <laughs> Some of you like that, eh? But the truth is that eating or ingesting is paradigmatic of the very essential mission that we, humanity at large, and the Jewish people specifically, have in the calling or vocation called life. When we eat, we ingest, and when we ingest, we receive the energy to be able to live and do things. And when we do good things, when we choose to live a life righteous, it's not only us, it's the things that enabled us that are also participating in that act of holiness. Look, we're studying Torah now. I believe this is an act of holiness. I'm not, I'm not sharing narashkeit, mumbo-jumbo, or silly ideas with you. I always have my holy books right in front of me. I read to you from these sacred texts. We're sharing words of Torah. If you can do this because you ate something today, whatever it is that you ate is participating in the Torah study as well. Say you had a salad. The salad grew in the soil and was hydrated. Guess what? The minerals and the vegetation are studying Torah now too. And if you had scrambled eggs, you can add the animal element. If you had a piece of fish, you can add the seafood element. If you had a piece of meat or a piece of chicken, the chicken and the cow are studying Torah now. What works in the kitchen is a paradigm for life. So we're told that dafka, it's not enough to seek out the naturally or organically sweet. Dafka. That's a great word, dafka. Dafka means it has to be this way indefinitely, no other way. It's the gvura of Yitzchak. It's that power, that, that might. You know, the power and the strength that makes people almost feel guilty or uncomfortable with. It can be seen as harsh and sharp, bitter and sour. And yet, if used appropriately, and that is the key, if used appropriately, if engineered, if guided, if channeled, if harnessed in the right direction. Lahamtik, to sweeten, so to speak, to sweeten that which seems too bitter, too sharp, to enjoy on its own, to sweeten it. Then what we have in effect achieved is what is best for this world, just like Garlic and onions are best for your kitchen. And if you like to cook, or even if you just like to eat, you know that not only sugar, but a whole array of spices, many of them not particularly enjoyable on their own, are necessary ingredients in the delicious food you enjoy. Baal Rebbe says, Dafke 
דגבורה אבי יצחק, אר יותר טובים לעולמות מבחינת כוח החסדים עצמם. The harsh severity is better than the saccharine sweetness. The bitter pill of judgment is better than the sweet apple of mediocrity. Why is that? If there is to be what we'll call, for lack of better terminology, a giving, a benefaction, if there is to be some kind of exchange, something being handed off, one entity, hydrating, nourishing, sustaining, providing for another. That's called hashpa'ah. So if there's going to be a hashpa'ah, and the hashpa'ah is going to be beribui, with great, tremendous abundance, with an or, with a chayot, with a, a vitality, a light and an energy, beyoter, if that's to happen, einoi ela, it can only be so, al yadei bechinat, it can only come through power. Bringing good things to life means harnessing otherwise toxic power. And that's because lefisha yeshbahem tagboret. Because the gvura has a lot of energy. Energy is a good thing. You just have to harness the thunder. You just have to be able to channel the lightning. And then we can bring good things to life. We need what is called an or and a chayot. We need a light or energy. We need vitality, an animating force that is atzum, that is far more intense far more intense and powerful than that which goodness can give. Goodness is limp. Sweetness oozes. It doesn't hit you in the face. It doesn't pack a powerful punch. It doesn't force you to do anything. It's just nice. Easy going. Nobody likes pressure. People want to be left alone. But let's think about it. If people had no pressure in life, if there was nothing pushing or cajoling, if there were no due dates, would anything ever get done? Would everybody perpetually be on vacation? We'd certainly seek out the path of least resistance because we don't like resistance. We don't want to find ourselves locking horns or tangling with obstacles, things that get in our way. We just avoid those things. What happens then? We don't grow. We are unable to get to the next level. 
Can you imagine a child who finishes the first grade? The first day in class was no fun. It was daunting, even a little scary. The child left behind the previously enjoyable environment of his nursery school or kindergarten with a little drama center and a place to play and arts and crafts. And it was always songs and stories. And now there's like, like a desk and they have to actually have lessons and read from books. It's different. It's not what the child's used to. Most children don't like or love the first day of school. They're a little, you know, out of sorts, kind of. But then, but then they get used to it. And as the time goes on, they learn to love it, if they have a good teacher. <laughs> if you love to learn, thank a teacher. That's probably who's responsible. Or maybe it was your parents who can be the best of teachers. The real job of a teacher is not simply to convey information, but to develop and stimulate a desire to stir an interest, a curiosity, and a will to learn. So you get through the first grade and the child is really comfortable. You know, like an old baseball mitt or shoes that are well worn in. If you ask the child, would you like to go to the second grade? Well, maybe just stay here for now, you know, it's just comfortable. There might be some children that will opt to stay in first grade. You do the math. Eight years later, the rest of the class is graduating and there's this overgrown kid sitting in first grade. It's, this is a, like a picture that's preposterous. But that is the story of life. In order for us to, to grow, in order for us to achieve things, we have to be ready to be comfortably uncomfortable. If you push yourself too much, you can get hurt. But if you don't push yourself at all, you just get sluggish. One of the most frustrating things for me as a rabbi is that line I hear time and again. Thanks, rabbi. I'm comfortable. You're comfortable. That's awful. That means you're not growing at all. All growth is accompanied by growing pains. We need to force ourselves. It's not nice. It's effective. Sometimes we had teachers or mentors, coaches or advisors who pushed us. You may not have liked them at the time. Aren't you grateful they pushed you now? Being nice. Just letting everything slide and kind of, you know, inch along is not the recipe for success in life. We need to be motivated. We need to have an aspiration. And it oftentimes comes because somebody pushed us or forced us. King Solomon in his wisdom said, 
Kinat sofrim tar It's the jealousy of scribes that increases books or knowledge. People are competitive by nature. If somebody else published and I'm an author, I can't believe they published again. I get competitive. I want to publish again too. You get the gist. Al-Tadeba says, that's the basic ingredient to life. Apples and honey are nice. They're so nice, we eat them on the night of Rosh Hashanah. But if you got invited over for dinner and all you got was apples and honey, you wouldn't be very happy. You want some tzimus and lots of other things too. It's true, on Rosh Hashanah we try to sweeten things primarily because there's a strong emphasis on eating things really sweet, not bittersweet or kind of tangy or sour. But invariably, the pleasant and delicious things in life involve an array and a synergy of ingredients and different tastes. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about gvura, that force, the power, getting pushed, that makes things happen in life rather than simply leaving them to the nice, sunny, kind ways that lead nowhere. Alter Rebbe says, what's the proof of this? It's the most like elemental proof of this. I'm here, Baruch Hashem. I'm alive. You're alive. We're learning Torah together. There's one thing I can be certain of. There's a beating heart within me and within you. We both have a plentiful supply of plasma. Because without blood, we can't live. Plain and simple. And how does the blood get to every tiny cell of our body? With pressure. Our heart is this marvelous, divinely crafted machine that continues to pump and pump and pump. And because it's pumping, we're alive today. Say somebody would describe you as a bloody person. Or when you think of the image of blood, it doesn't resonate in a kind fashion. Milk does. Milk is that life-elixing substance that God endowed mothers with so that they can nurse, hydrate, and nourish their children. The Torah itself is sometimes compared to mother's milk, and that's why or at least one of the reasons, on Shavuot, when we celebrate the giving of the Torah, we don't only eat meat, we make a point of eating a dairy or milk meal as well. There's something beautiful about the land of milk and honey. It oozes with peace, tranquility, and of course, sweet sustenance. And yet, I didn't drink any milk today. 
I go by days or even weeks without drinking milk. But we all have blood. Blood is a sign of death, injury, harshness. Blood-stained is an adjective for violence. And yet, blood is the thing that makes life go round. When people give blood, they're actually giving life to somebody. Blood is gevura. In the Kabbalah codes, color codes, white is chesed and red is gevura. We all need blood. Veraya midam huha nefesh. Soul isn't contained in milk, but it is contained in blood. Blood has the oxidizing force. It's what carries life itself with it. Shehu bebechinas hagvuras. Definitely in the arena of power or strength. If you hear of somebody being hot-blooded, racing blood, sounds better in Yiddish. Zudike, he's the blut. The hot-blooded youth. Sometimes it denotes people who seek passion and pleasure with great force. Whereas somebody who's older is more placid, maybe more serene and calm about life. But there's something incredible about that hot-blooded warmth what make life go round. It's the power of Gvura incarnated in living color, if you will. That is the primary ingredient in existence. Lifeblood. It's what makes a person be live. The chain. It's a lame term, benefaction, but it's like a, all giving. Any kind of giving of sustenance, giving of, of life, of uh, animation. All gifts, all benefactions that come that come in great abundance. Not a trickle, but a, a flow, a powerful flow. It's always Gvura. Come on, Hagshaman. Can't live without rain. Can't live without water. If God forbid it stops raining, you're looking for a, a recipe for disaster. In the ancient world, a drought would spell famine. And God forbid pest, pestilence and death. We need rain, desperately, all the time. But in a country like Canada, rain is not one of the things we worry about often. But in a country like Israel, water supply is always on top of people's list. It's not easy to be in a hot, arid place that isn't filled with a Nile Delta or many rivers. 
and provide water for all the citizens or inhabitants. Levi Eshkol, who was Israel's third prime minister, he spent his whole career, if you will, creating the waterways that hydrate Israel. But when the Torah describes the land of Israel, it describes it as the place that always needs rain. Limtar hashemayim tishte. Irrigation takes place not from below the great deep, like the land of Egypt where the Jewish people came from, where the Nile and its deltas is what irrigates and allows for plentiful agriculture. That's why in biblical times, when there was a drought in Israel, think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they headed south to Egypt. In the land of Israel, rain. It's a land of hills. And the hills lend themselves naturally to the water being distributed equally. And in the land of Israel, by design, we're always raising our eyes. We're looking to the heavens because Israel is supposed to lend itself to God consciousness. And the rain from heaven are seen as a gift from God. Now water connotes chesed, kindness. Think of life elixing hydration. Fire represents gvura. Fire represents the fiery judgment. But water represents chesed, typically. And yet, incredibly enough, the Gemara in Mesechet Ta'anit, which speaks to us about the prayers we offer for water, for rain, the Mishnah says, from when do we mention the powerful or power of rains? Gvuras Gishamim. And the Gemara comes along and says, can we revisit that, that business of when we ask for maskirin al hagishamim? Why don't we just say we, we mention rain, we pray for rain? At what point do we need to start praying for rain? Why is it that the language in the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is very sparing with its words, very precise with all of the words it uses. Why did it insert the adjective of gvuros geshomim, the powerful rains? So the Gemara says, my, what is this? What is this language of gvuros geshomim? And the Gemara's answer is, Amar Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Yechanan taught, Mipnei sheyordin bigvura. The rain itself, water itself is chesed. It's a sign of blessing. One should even say that when you encounter water, said the Baal Shem Tov. But water doesn't trickle down from heaven. It pours down with great force. The rains that can hydrate fields and stimulate the economy, allowing for plentiful agriculture, are not soft little rains. 
They're heavy rains. Not a little bit of mist, but a downpour. And that downpour, well, it comes with great force. So the Gemara says, it's Yerdim Bigvura. As many of the Rishonim say, it falls forcefully and as such is effective in saturating the ground and being able to penetrate the full crust of the ground down to the roots of vegetation and botany that's able to be nourished through that rain that fell heavily. The Ritva has a little bit of a different take on this. The Ritva says, elsewhere the Gemara tells us that God gave the keys, if you will, some keys to others, but the keys to rain are always, proverbially speaking, anthropomorphical, of course, in God's hands. Then I found the commentary of the Me'iri. And I find this really fascinating. I want to share it with you. I think, I think that this perhaps augments and frames the idea that we're trying to convey in a very, very meaningful way. The Me'iri wrote, Umasha karam gvuros geshamim. The fact that our sages referred to rain as powerful rains, forceful downpour. Pershu begemara, the Gemara says, mepneshe yordin begvura, because it falls, it pours down. And the Me'iri adds the following. Veromais alboon harbeipamim shelo bezman yeridatam. This alludes to, it hints at, the idea, the Torah idea that oftentimes rainfall is not a natural occurrence. Of course, this is a faith-based Torah perspective. That rain comes oftentimes shaloi bizman yiridasim b'derechateva. As God's providence, or perhaps God's reciprocity to His children for their abundance of prayer. Hashem wants us to pray. When we pray, we achieve a connection to Hashem and become a conduit a system through which Hashem's blessings come our way. The Me'iri is suggesting that the falling of rain is connected not to a natural or predictable trajectory, but something that comes from another place. It's almost something that's forcibly inserted. It interrupts the ebb and flow of nature. It's not predictable. Interrupting the natural sequence of things always requires an overpowering of sorts. Think of a fan going very quickly. It's not easy just to stick your fingers in the blades and get it to stop. 
things are happening or ordained to be in a particular way and Hashem shatters the frame of nature. That's a gevura. That's great might. That's force. That's something that certainly represents the path of greatest resistance. So Dalta Rebbe says, Gvura is really important. Without Gvura we wouldn't have rain. Without rain we don't have our, the idea of farming or agriculture. And that would leave us very hungry. Here we are back in the kitchen again. Forget taste. We'd have nothing to eat. So not only are the spices the thing that add the zest and the taste and the pizzazz to the food that cooked in the kitchen, if you wouldn't have rain, you wouldn't have anything in the kitchen. Gvura strikes again. So this thesis is power isn't bad. In fact, the only way to really live is with a, a force and electricity, a power, a power that has to be harnessed. Dalton Ebbe says this is captured in another very enigmatic statement that the Gemara makes in Mesechet Moed Katan. Dalton Ebbe just quotes four words from this Gemara. I'm going to share the Gemara with you. Ubana, Chaya, Umezoyne. Bona is Aramaic for progeny, literally children. Chaya, Aramaic for chayut or life, health. Mizoyne is Aramaic for mizonot or sustenance. So we're talking about family, talking about health, and we're talking about prosperity. These three things, says the Gemara, b'mazla talia, they hinge not on things by right of which you earned, but rather they hinge on destiny, called mazl, one's fortunes, that are preordained. Listen to this Gemara. It's a Gemara Mesechet Moed Katan. It's found on page 28, side A. The Gemara says, Gemara has a conversation, a discussion about longevity. The Gemara, in fact, calls reaching old age Gvurot. You're like, you're pushing forward. <laughs> you're not just going easy going. You're pushing yourself. So talking about longevity or maybe a shortened or shorter life, the Gemara brings a teaching. Omar Rava. Rava said, you must know that Chaya, Bone, Umezoyne, interestingly a different order than we typically have it, health, children, and sustenance whether a person will live a long life or not as long a life. Whether a poor person will have good children, kind children, sensitive children, 
appropriate children or not. And whether a person will be able to sustain themselves honorably, have an ample livelihood, or be destitute. It is not by virtue of what you rightfully earned. A zechut is my rights. But rather, it depends on the mazel, fortune. What does this mean when we say it depends on one's fortune? So the Gemara gives us a, the simplest illustration by contrasting two very righteous people who, one could argue, had both earned the right to longevity, to prosperity, and to nachas from children. And the two individuals in this case study a parallel contrast are Rabbe and Ravchista. Travayu Rabbonon Tzadiki. Both were great rabbis, great teachers of Torah, mentors to thousands, sources of global inspiration. They were both very pious and righteous people. And yet, despite the fact that they were both very righteous people, and that Mar Matsli Vaosi Mitra, or Mar Matsli Vaosi Mitra, both individuals on different occasions were called upon by the populace for spiritual help, for intervention. There was no rain. Both prayed. And both, both had their prayers answered. So they're both righteous. That's a practical example. They were both, if you will, favorably disposed to God. And yet, when you look at the lives that these two remarkable individuals lived, they were remarkably different. Rav Chista havetishin v'sartin shonen. He lived for 99 years. That's a pretty long life. Pardon me, uh, 92 years. Whereas Rabba, he lived for 40 years. That's not a very long life. In the house of Rav Chista, over the course of his very long lifetime, no less than 60 weddings were celebrated. That's a lot of simchas. Weddings of children and many grandchildren. Sixty weddings. Ve'ilu be'i Rabbe, the house of Rabbe, shitin tichli. That house experienced a staggering, mind-boggling amount of shivas. They sat shivas sixty times. It's almost hard to imagine that it's possible. Children and grandchildren who predeceased him, and he lived to 40. Beit Avchista, smido lechalbe, even the dogs got fed fine flour. 
to the best of my knowledge, the dogs weren't pets. They were working dogs, like shepherd dogs, guard dogs. In antiquity, they didn't view, at least not in Torah societies, they didn't view animals as friends. The animals were there to help people. They rode a horse, they went long distances on a camel. It wasn't a pet, it was a utilitarian relationship. The donkey was a pack animal and the dog was a guard animal. So it's not like it was their child, so they fed him fine food, like today's doggy industries. No, there was like work animals. And yet, even the dog biscuits were made of the finest flour. And furthermore, they weren't even hungry. The dogs had plenty to eat. Beit Abba, in the house of Rabba, Nama Deshare Leinshe. Pardon me, Nama Deshare. They gave what was considered to be animal fodder, barley or oats, which in antiquity was, you know, like a step down. Human beings ate wheat, and the animals were fed barley or fodder, oats. Even the people had to eat bread made of oat flour because they couldn't afford wheat. And they didn't even have oat flour all the time. So, by rights, if Rav Chista earned his many blessings, by right, so did Rabbah. And if Rabbah didn't earn his many blessings, why would Rav Chista have earned them? Both were teachers of Torah. Both were pious and righteous. Both were capable of petitioning heaven on behalf of the plurality of the Jewish people and being answered. And yet, one had a life of tremendous material plenty and one led a life of tremendous deprivation. A lot of sadness. One had incredible longevity one had no longevity. One had unbelievable nachas. And Nebuch, one had only sadness. One had such opulence and material plenty. And the other was often left hungry. So Rav uses that to say it's not b'schusa talya milsa, it's b'mazla talya milsa. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say somebody has good mazel or bad mazel? The truth is that none of us really understand the ways of Hashem. None of us should be foolish, so foolish as to say we know why things happen. God has His infinite wisdom and His way of apportioning or judging, giving each detail within the entire gamut of creation, exactly what it's supposed to receive. And sometimes we can't change it, as the Mepharshim discuss. Sometimes all the prayers in the world can't change a person's mazel. The mazel is seen as a paradigm of gevura, 
God's judgment. Sometimes it's judgment in the image of restraint, poverty and deprivation, but sometimes it represents tremendous abundance. So mazel isn't lack. Mazel is the force. Think of it as a showerhead, a powerful showerhead. Some people are getting this profusion of blessings, and other people are getting a trickle. Not chesed. Gevura. That's the point being made. Says the Alter Rebbe, This represents that idea of divine judgment and severity. Not something meritorious. Not something which comes from my, my right. I've done what Hashem asked me to. Well, what do you think? You just get paid? What are you working on a salary? Hashem remunerates, but He does so at the time of His choosing and in the method of His desire. True, but by right to Hashem's chesed. It would be, it seems, appropriate for goodness to engender or beget goodness. That's what the Alter Rebbe calls Hechel HaChesed, the proverbial hall or this institution of kindness, divine kindness. But it doesn't work that way. Instead, it comes from Gvura. And so the question at the beginning of today's class was, so, so what is it with this Gvura business? Why do we need that, that strength and that power? Why can't we just be nice? Because that's not the way the world works. Our world is powered by pressure and power. Things, the force, if not the spirit of force, certainly the force of spirit is what can uplift, it's what can cajole, it's what can propel, it's what can move things forward. It's gvura. But the gvura can be very harsh. So what we need is gvura that's tempered or sweetened. The Alter Rebbe, in an earlier mimer, a mimer that's found earlier in the Siddur, in the latest iteration, it's on page Memches, Amodalad, or page 96, he says, it's known that Gvuras, that the Gvura in and of itself, comes from a primordial world known as Tohu, known as chaos. And that's why he says life is propelled by a force of Gvura, Adamu Anefesh. Because hagvurot hema mekoriim amitiim yoter gvura, discipline, restraint, force, the force that's the force that's engendered by restraint. Think of a dam. 
and think of the power that it unleashes. That's the real source of benefaction, even more so than kindness, even more so than benevolence. So this is not understood in a physical or material way at all, but when God first began to formulate creation on a spiritual level, there was a world called tohu, or chaos, unbridled energy. Each power, each force was unrestrained. There was no sense of synergy, amalgamation. Nobody stepped aside for one another. Nobody, nobody pooled resources, calibrated themselves so they could actually effectively get along. They all saw their force as the only force. So kindness wanted to just overwhelm everything, bathe everything in endless light. And restraint wanted to create endless amounts of negative energy or black holes in darkness. Needless to say, you can't create a world that way. What happened was that these forces rivaled each other to the point that they literally exploded. Is that a spiritual description of a Big Bang kind of event? Maybe. If it makes you feel good. I don't know. But it definitely is a spiritual description. So in our world, kindness reigns supreme. We live in the world of tikkun. Tikkun doesn't really mean fixed as in broken. Tikkun means calibrated, tuned, like a piano that's fine-tuned. We live in a world of synergy. We live in a world where there are many different conflicting forces that are able to somehow coalesce, to create a symphony, to create a beautiful blend of conditions that allow for life, healthy life, balanced life. And in this world, in this reality, there must always be more kindness. Kindness has to reign supreme. That's why God made all of us off-kilter, as I mentioned in a previous episode. Most of us are stronger on the right side. That's why right represents chesed and left represents gvuro or discipline. Of course there has to be discipline. A child growing up in a home with no discipline is not growing up in a healthy environment, but a child growing up in a home where there is only discipline or even an equal amount of discipline to love and affection is a childhood blighted. That's a child who's going to grow up stunted. In fact, psychologists today have proven that if you want your, call it, criticism, your disciplinary kind of words and actions to be effective, that they have to be outweighed with positive encouragement and expressions of love and affection and acceptance on a ratio of one to ten. Minimum. That means for every biting or critical word you say to your children, you should have found opportunity to express to them 
10 other times how much you love them, how proud you are of them, how, how good it is to be their parent. And these life-affirming messages of love and affection and acceptance, this idea of so many embraces, both literally and figuratively, is what creates the balance so that you can criticize the child when you have to. Of course, I'm talking about positive, constructive criticism. It still needs to be weighed, outweighed heavily with kindness, with love, affection, and benevolence. That's in this reality, the Tikkun world. But in the Tohu world, in the Tohu world of unbridled energy, which is really the original source of life and existence, it was Gvura, not Chesed, that reigns supreme. That's a recipe for disaster. And Tohu didn't end well, or doesn't end well. But nonetheless, it is only Tohu that allows for Tikkun. We can live in a world of Tikkun because we're preceded by a world of Tohu. And the forces of life are ultimately rooted not in the limp, cute, sweet, nice, easygoing kindness, but the rhythm of intense, powerful, and, if you will, biting nature of Gvura. Altareba says that very clearly. And he says, the problem, of course, is that this fiery energy leads to explosion. It leads to reality, nuclear physics being ripped apart. So it has to be tempered. And he says, if you have the bitter things alone, it's it's like things that are acrid, things that are biting, kind of stuff that'll set your teeth on edge. Nobody bites into an onion. Nobody chews on, on garlic, raw garlic. The omnom, kishanim tiku, but when they are engineered or sweetened, they become so pleasant, delicious, much more so than koyach, hachasodim, hametukim, than things that are organically or naturally sweet. So it's not just a question of re restraining or limiting the sweetness. It's a question of engineering that strong and powerful array of tastes and energies. That is what leads us to greatness. Let me share with you something fascinating that the Alter Rebbe wrote in a mimer. It's called Memorim Akhtsarim, short, pithy Hasidic teachings. He speaks about kindness. And he says, kindness is all good. But he says, kindness is also cold and it's indifferent. 
an ocean of kindness. Limp, cool, dispassionate, endless giving. It's pleasant. Go along to get along. Think of that beautiful water, nice river. You know, David HaMelech's beautiful meadows. The Binois Desha Yarbitseni. Everything's nice. Everything's well hydrated. Everything's luscious. Sweet. It's beginners chesed. It's cool like toiv, he says. It's all good. Doesn't know of anything evil. Doesn't know of anything which is dangerous. Like playing with fire and getting burned. The Hainu Eish, Gvuras, the Ikrishara. You have hot tempered, angry, frustrated, arrogant, insatiably desirable, desiring, or or endless kinds of ambition that fuels people. It's all hot. Intense. It's dangerous. Altarebbe says, yeah. But those are the things that passion is made of. And he says, in Avodat Hashem, it means to serve Hashem with a fire and a fervor and a passion. He says, you actually need that. It is true, he says, that these inner fires can easily burn out of control in their insatiable lust for pleasure, where people are blinded by their endless desire for sensual libido and will step over everybody and anybody to get what they want. Kas, ah, consuming rage and the fires of anger. True it can become very bad. But if harnessed, it can be the most amazing kind of passionate service to Hashem. Mitzah Chesed, says, is all good. There's no resistance. There's no friction. There's no pressure. There's sweet mediocrity. Alter Rebbe says something unbelievable. He says... From that cool, dispassionate, easygoing demeanor, nothing new can be engendered. Nothing can be, if you will, born. Alter Rebbe says a very interesting thing. There's this mystical, Kabbalistic tradition that the souls of righteous and pious people are reincarnated into fish. So the Alter Rebbe says, what is this? Why are they being reincarnated into a fish? He said, if they're sinners, if they're sinners, so they should be reincarnated into a person, given another chance. And if they're not, if they're pious, would you stick them in a fish for? He says their sin was being dispassionate. Their sin was they were frigid, always easy, always kind, always benevolent, always nice, never filled with a sense of ambition and fire and fervor and passion and a drive and a will to go get stuff, make it happen, get it done. It's a problem. That's like a sin of 
omission. So they end up in a fish. Then hopefully the fish gets caught for Shabbos. <laughs> and then when a Yid has some kosher seafood and serves Hashem through the fish, ah, the neshama itself is released. Now, I'm not talking about Gilgul and reincarnation. That's a whole complicated subject. And it is not to be understood in the typical Western, which is actually Sanskrit or Eastern fashion. That's not what reincarnation is about. But there is something. I actually did give a class many years ago. I think it's an audio available on Chabad.org. It's called Kabbalah and Reincarnation. And um, if you want to know more, you can go watch that. The point I wanted to make from this little mimer is that sometimes the cool, dispassionate demeanor, which is all good, isn't good enough because it's missing the gvura. So when we have the broken sound of the shofar, it's because we need the gvura. We need the judgment. We need the intensity. And we need to sweeten it. And that's how we can have a new year filled with good things. The Mittler Rebbe, in one of his memorim, he talks about this in a number of different memorim. This is what I'm going to quote this line that I um, want to quote to you from is from the Maimurim on the book of Leviticus Levayikra, the second volume. It's page Tuf Tzadik Tes, 492 of that particular volume. And he says like this, It is the intensity of the sun and the south that allows for a great deal of agriculture and vegetation. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu said that when he blessed the lands of the tribes of Yosef, he said, Mimeged to voice Shomesh. You'll have abundant, bountiful, multiple harvests because it's exposed to the sun. He talks about a particular valley in the north of Israel called Ginusar, where things ripen very quickly. Beautiful climate but lots of sunshine. And it allows for tremendous growth. The Mithla Rebbe says that when it comes to the act of procreation, which in the language of Kabbalah is called Mayim Dukhurin or Mad, if the substance that emits with from a, a man's body, known in English as ejaculation, if it doesn't come forward, if it, doesn't, it isn't ejaculated from the body with force, if it isn't yoyre kechetz bechamimus, with passion, it's a kind of activity that's not limp or dispassionate. So you see that warmth, that fire, that intensity, is actually a very good thing if it's harnessed appropriately. People's urge for sensual pleasure and their desire for intimate kind of activity is very intense and it's led many people down a path of destruction but if harnessed appropriately and graced with the holiness of matrimony that's why we're here and that comes in far greater diffusion than the power of chesed and that's the idea of the shulchan in the Mishkan. Al-Tarebbe brings this down also. In the north, that the north represents not the sun, but the stormy weather and the intensity of the downpour. 
that allows for a tremendous amount of growth. Lastly, I will share with you a snippet of something that the Rebbe de Tzemach Tzedek wrote in his Biyuri HaZohar. He has a whole book of explanations on the Zohar, on the book of Zohar. So he says, Al Derech Moshel, in order to illustrate it, to make his point, he says, you have an Adam, a person who's a Baal Koyach, a person who is able, a person who is powerful, a person who is strong. Why is he called a Gibor? Is he called mighty? He's a powerful person. He gets stuff done. He's got a lot of Koyach in him. And the Tzimach Tzedek says, you know, there are a lot of verses in the scripture that seem to be like almost paradoxical. For example, in the 103rd Psalm, it says, Govar chasta, an overpowering of kindness. Kindness and overpowering are oxymoronic in nature. Kindness is a soft, sweet, easygoing flow. And overpowering is tremendous force, a tsunami. Or in the 117th Psalm, Ki govar chasta, God's kindness is overpowering. Could you... Imagine being overpowered by benevolence. He was overpoweringly kind. Seriously? People use the expression, kill him with kindness. But, you know, it's a funny way to speak. Birchas avicha govru. It's an expression at the end of the Torah where Jacob speaks about the blessings. He says, the blessings of my father. Govru. They overpowered. And there are many places like this. On the surface, he says, it seems to be paradoxical in nature. One is restraint, one is benefaction, and one is benevolent in giving. But he says, really and truly, there is no contradiction because the inyanat simtsum, it's when something is restrained or held back that it allows it to be propelled forward with tremendous force. Think of a dam, think of your shower head. You get a good shower with good pressure. A good shower head that has little tiny holes rather than a shower head that has a few big holes allows the water to come forth with great force. It makes for a good shower. That's precisely the point. It's breaking it or kind of withholding so it becomes many, many little individual streams that makes it powerful. And the Tzemach Tzedek says... That's why rain is referred to in that expression, like a showerhead. It comes down with individual drops rather than a deluge or flood of rain. It's called Gevudah's Geshamah. And he says this is the idea of Mazel versus Zuchut, which we just read a bit earlier in the Gemara. Now Rebbe continues and he says... It is known that chesed is cold and can be very, very sluggish even sometimes. But the gvura, it's chamimos, intensity, hot stuff. Ribuy ha'er, a tremendous profusion of light or energy. Kichol choim moilidu marbe, to engender birth. You need passion. Intimacy is not a calm, easygoing kind of experience. That's what makes life happen. 
as is explained in many places at length. And the Alter Rebbe finishes off with a very interesting expression from the book of Yehoshua. We recite this every year at the Pesach Seder monologue where we try to engage our children and read verses that speak about the development of the Jewish people, our eventual enslavement, and then the redemption, the birth of the nation at the time of the Exodus. So the expression in the 24th chapter of Yehoshua is va'arbe et zaro. I increased his seed. In the Haggadah, where it says va'arbe et zaro, so the Rebbe, in his commentary in the Haggadah, quotes from the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, that says, Arbe, which is written, Ve'arev, Aleph, Reish, Beis, Kamarivim, Asisi, How much did I tangle with him? I really put him through the ringer, Hashem says. Till I finally gave him Yitzchak. I challenged him endlessly until I gave him Yitzchak. So va'arbe zarim refers to restraint, Avram's tests. The chidah says something, something unbelievable. The chidah in Zraya Yemin, he says, this is about the nisyonot, the tests that Avram Avinu had to endure. And he says, you have to understand. It says va'arbe, va'arbe, it says about his children, but actually it's Avraham who had the tests. Va'arba et zaro sounds like I tested his children, but the Yerushalmi says, Kamarivis also, how much did Hashem test Avraham? What does this mean? So the Chidah says, Avraham Avinu had to be crystallized, he had to be cleansed. He had to have the toxins, the negativity removed in order, for, in order for him to be able to produce a Yitzchak. So first there was Yishmael, there was other things, extraneous things that came from Avraham Avinu. Laban Yiskadish, so they become holy, sanctified. Think of the gold ore that has toxins that have to be burnt off in the crucible until the pure gold emerges. And that's Va'arba. That's the Kamarivim. Venishar Hamurum. What was left was what was lifted, elevated. The Zera Kredish. And that's Yitzchak. And indeed, Alta Rebbe says, Arba is the gematria of 208, and that's the gematria of Yitzchak, which is Bechinus Agvurus. So Avram perfected looks like Yitzchak. But Yitzchak then needs to be re-engineered and sweetened. And that we'll talk about with Hashem's help tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining. I hope that you found this life-affirming, uplifting. I hope you're not ashamed or embarrassed to be a powerful person because that's a good thing. As long as you sweeten, engineer and harness it right. Might can make right if used appropriately. It's the only way we can defeat evil. And the most important thing is to mightily battle our own little demons, our own dark and debilitating Yetzirah. 
And as we sweeten Hashem's judgments by breaking the sound of the shofar, it reminds us to sweeten and perfect our own gevura from within. For in doing so, we catalyze this reciprocity from Hashem Yisbarach, and we bring about a year of hopefully ploys bakol, wonders in all, a year of global transformation, a year of goodness that is sweet, sweet enough for us to taste, a year of Mirz Hashem, of oira, of light, of bracha, of blessing, and a year of geula, be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach, of redemption through the coming of Mashiach. Thank you so much for joining. Please take a moment to like and to share with others. And if you haven't, please do subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you. Have a beautiful day.